0: Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Warton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guests today are Dave Unsworth and Carrie Golden from Information Venture Partners, a Canadian venture capital firm co-founded by Dave in 2014 that primarily invests in early-stage North American B2B fintech and enterprise software. We discuss their transition from operators to investors, their relationship with the Royal Bank of Canada, fundraising from institutional LPs, their strategy to invest in the next generation of leaders, the importance of engineering a culture early on, interesting fintech trends, the role of a CFO at a VC firm, and a lot more. And now join me in a great conversation with Dave Unsworth and Kerry Golden. Well, Dave, Kerry, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Very, very excited to have you here, all the way from Toronto, Canada. Can we get started by hearing a bit about your backgrounds?
1: Sure, and, and Miguel, thanks for having us today. Perhaps maybe it would be helpful to give you a little bit of context about the firm background, and then we can talk about our individual backgrounds. Uh, Information Venture Partners is a, a relatively new independent venture firm being founded in 2014. But myself and, and my partners, Carrie and Rob, have a lot of venture experience going all the way back to the late 90s, early 2000s. So the heritage of our fund, if you will, was actually managing corporate venture capital funds inside of World Bank of Canada, which is Canada's largest financial institution, but has a large footprint in the US. And in 2014, we had an opportunity to buy out the fund and, and take the fund private. And that formed Information Venture Partners. And today, you know, we are now managing Fund Three as an independent entity, and uh, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of you know three hundred million across the three funds. So bring that full circle. Myself, though, in terms of a background, prior to starting in venture capital in two thousand and one, I had a uh, several different operating roles within uh, RBC itself. So I was actually an RBC insider before joining the venture arm, uh, and that career spanned you know, roles of increasing responsibility across retail banking, mid-market commercial banking, and uh, also spent some time in head office in a group that was building out the first iterations of online and mobile banking. So really early days of, of fintech, if you will, at least uh, from an inside perspective. So I'll pass it to Carrie now because I think you'll see she's got a wonderfully complimentary but very different background than mine. So
2: I'm the non-banker in the crowd, so... I'll break my career kind of into two parts. So, the first 20 years, I would say I was learning about business and helping to build some businesses and get them off the ground. So, I had the honor to be part of the founding team at Cantel, which became Rogers Wireless, one of the large mobile carriers here in Canada, right at service launch. So, I know for many people on the podcast, it'll be amazing to think that mobile communications didn't exist, but it didn't. So, I had the great opportunity to see a business grow from zero to a couple hundred million in revenue very, very shortly within two and a half years and was a part of that industry for a number of years. I had progressive positions in finance right through information technology, as well as the CEO of one of the business units before I left there. I went on to a couple of other entertainment as well as a biotech company where I was the public company CFO. So I've had that experience as well in the first half of my career. And then I kind of turned to wanting to do something different. And, and it was around that dot com time where a mentor of mine mentioned you know, some companies that were looking for help. And I thought it'd be interesting to learn about the other side. And it spent the last 20 years more on the investor side of the fund, first as a general partner with a very early stage fund called Primaxis, which RBC was a lead investor in. In fact, where I met Dave and Rob initially, and then also with some other smaller funds and joint information venture partners on launch back in 2014.
0: Yeah, certainly two complementary backgrounds, but both very interesting. I think it'll be interesting to talk about your transition being operators to now you know, having the head of VC investors. And maybe we can start with you, Carrie, because you spent some time outside of the financial sector for a while prior to VC.
2: Yes, my transition came about because one of the directors of the last company that I worked for actually knew a group um, at RBC that was setting up these really early stage funds um, and had the concept that uh, almost of an impact team that you may see in some venture funds today that help on operations. So I actually entered through that lens. I entered thinking it was probably a consulting assignment to help them figure some things out. In fact, I I convinced them to not launch something called Company in a Box, because they felt that perhaps they could offer a suite of services like marketing, finance, a bunch of the, let's call them the support services, to many different types of funds. So they had an ag tech fund, they had a deep tech fund, they had e-commerce, an early internet fund. And so, but through that process, I got to know one of the funds in particular And learned that while some of the team were very, very deep in tech and science, people that really understood business models were very valuable to the investment process and thesis, particularly as it, it meant helping companies raise additional financing. So I went to learn a little bit about how money got given out on the other side of the equation and stayed because I really liked the variety and working with entrepreneurs on their new business.
1: Great. So maybe I'll, uh, I'll talk a little bit about my background as well. And so prior to, prior to being in venture in 2001, I had a lot of experience, I guess, in front of customers. So as retail bank operations and understood sort of the whole go to market and marketing and working directly with customers face to face in terms of a service orientation. And I think the same was true actually for the next sort of Uh, period of my career was in doing mid-market commercial lending to more of a diversified portfolio that included some technology. So I think I got a real appreciation early in my career for sort of service orientation, which I'm going to touch about in a minute. And then the second piece was really understanding growing small and medium-sized businesses across a variety of industries. And and I think think both of those have helped me in my career in venture because you get a, a certain empathy and a certain understanding for customer expectations go to market and, and also just the struggles of entrepreneurs growing businesses. And I think some VCs get that empathy from actually being tech operators and founding companies. But I think you can get that entrepreneur empathy by having other kinds of roles where you're exposed to and support uh, those entrepreneurs in that journey. And uh, you know, I, th- I think lastly, the, the passion for technology really came in in the late 90s and early 2000s when I had a chance to really start to build out online banking and mobile banking and realized how much friction there actually was in the system and what a wonderful opportunity it was to apply technology to not just make the bank a better and more profitable sort of business, but also to like customers, right, with new service offerings. So I think all those really helped support what I was doing and, and ultimately a, a passion for venture capital.
0: Outstanding, outstanding. Uh, I think it's interesting that in the last few days, really, there's been a, a similar development to innovation venture Partners, and that is Santander in the Ventures, their corporate VC arm, doing a similar move to IBP and spinning out their fund into an independent company now called Moro Capital. Can you tell us about your original relationship with RBC and whether there were any continuing relations and communications after you spun out?
1: Sure. So, you know, originally our fund was sponsored within the finance organization within the bank or anchored there. And I make that distinction because today you'll see funds that are sponsored by the investment banking groups that are looking really to supply that equity pre sort of public market and pre ma and sort of tie it and anchor it in that part of the business. I think what was unique about where we were anchored, it was really almost in a way like a predecessor to a lot of the innovation arms you see within financial services today. And the bank, I think, had a very thoughtful approach to venture at the time because while they allowed us to establish ourselves to be have a profit orientation and a profit motive to try to find the best companies, they really wanted to use us as, I think, a uh, an extension of their innovation or their ability to understand what was happening in the marketplace and bring some of those interesting companies inside. The model certainly wasn't perfect. Like many corporate venture funds at the beginning, I think they were very interested in in us investing in companies that were going to absolutely be vendors to the bank and were absolutely sort of more mature. And I think over time, we were able to you know, convince the bank that maybe investing in earlier stage companies that were really changing paradigms and changing market focus and, and shift and applying new technologies to financial services problems was the right place to be if they really wanted to understand what was happening on the innovation side of the market. So they allowed us to evolve the strategy to be like that prior to us spinning out. And and I think, you know, for a variety of reasons, particularly post-financial crisis, there was a lot of regulatory, new regulations introduced, Volcker, Dodd-Frank, and other things that made it very difficult for large financial institutions to be in in venture. So I think that afforded us an opportunity to, um, you know, allow us to do a management buyout of the fund, um, because it wasn't a situation where the bank could really treat it as a core business or a primary business. All that said, I think we continue to enjoy a very, very good relationship with RBC. And in fact, they, among other financial institutions, are limited partners in our fund. So we have a very nice group of strategic limited partners in the fund, and RBC still plays an important role as as one of those strategic LPs. And all of the things that we were able to do internally, we, we are still able to do to some extent today in terms of introducing new and exciting technologies into the various groups within the bank that may benefit from that.
0: So... And speaking of LPs, you used to have a single LP, and then you went to obviously become a full-fledged fund, and you had to fundraise. How did that process work out?
1: As any VC will tell you, raising an institutional venture fund is not always the easiest thing to do, particularly in early days. But I, I think we had a real advantage and an opportunity in that we had established a track record inside of the bank. And you know, having been supported by the largest financial institution in Canada, I think brought a certain amount of credibility to the fact that you know, assembled a good team and we're doing some good activities in the market. And by that point, the investment in companies that we had done had become mature. So we were able to point to a very real track record. I think the other thing that was interesting by the time we went to do a management buyout fintech as a concept, it actually started to get legs. So, Because when we started investing in 2001, and 2002, and 2002, there was no such thing as fintech. It wasn't a thing as it is today or a term. And so I think there was a fair amount of institutional interest in, in how financial institutions are going to start to apply technology to their businesses and disrupt their businesses. So... We were investing in an area that was interesting to institutional LPs, and we had had the benefit of creating a track record inside of the bank. So
2: And I think the bank was very interested in making sure uh, that Rob and Dave particularly could, could move on um, and do something independently you know, in the space. And so, as as Dave mentioned, having an individual track record, which I think sometimes can be quite difficult to untangle inside of a corporate VC, they made it very easy. They were super supportive of making all of that information available to use in our process, which I think was very helpful to institutions that were looking at us.
1: And I think the difficult side was Rob and I, and you know, had to actually leave careers at RBC and and make that leap because. We were never going to attract, you know, the, the kind of institutional money that we did until we showed that we were all in and really put our full time and attention and energy into doing nothing but raising the next funds. And um, I think that strategy worked well. We also had some excellent partners. One of our lead and anchor LPs is a group out of Boston called Harborvest, and they were very supportive both in the actual buyout from RBC, but then also willing to support us because they liked us, they liked our strategy, liked our track record. They committed and and supported us through subsequent funds, and so they, we've had an absolutely outstanding relationship with Harbourvest out of Boston, and, and certainly some of the larger fund of funds in Canada, like Northleaf and and TerraList and the Business Development Bank.
0: Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about your strategy, your investing strategy. You mentioned that you are looking to invest in the next generation of leaders, right? Can you tell us a bit more about this concept, and also? How do you select the right leaders, right? What's your approach? Maybe I'll start
2: that one, Dave. I think we're looking for someone who's passionate about their idea and ideally someone who has real-life experience with the problem they might be solving or you know, a deep, deep interest in that. You know, we're certainly looking for things we can add value to. So one of the things we do through our LPs and network of, of entrepreneurs we backed previously is look to see if we can surround the company with help to be successful in their business. So clearly looking for that, looking for people who learn and you know, want to grow in their role, whether they're you know, a first-time CEO or member of the team. And I think we do look for people that have very unique cultures that can help their company be successful. It seems that the ones that you know really get the machine moving and their rhythm going are folks who are trying to build something special inside the organization with their team. So I'll let Dave expand on that, maybe with an example. Sure,
1: and I, and I think I think Carrie's last point is probably the most important point. There, it's these unique individuals that really know how to how to paint a compelling picture, um, not just to customers when they're going to market and trying to explain what they're doing to the marketplace and to potential customers, but it's those entrepreneurs that have that sort of charisma that can attract the best talent to their teams, too. You have to remember we're an early stage fund and the teams are very rarely, the executive teams are very rarely fully formed. So you want that charismatic individual to really be able to attract the best people and and really get behind the cause and, and get committed. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, a perfect examples, we've got Catherine Renier, who runs a company called Coconut Software. And she's building a company in Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, not known as a, necessarily a hotbed for technology startups and, and certainly a pioneer in that market, but she's such a compelling leader and, and caring leader. She's really been able to build a reputation for the company and, and as an employer and has been able to attract some absolutely amazing, talent in offices, both in, in Saskatoon, but also now in Toronto as well. And she's done exceptionally well in the market for a small company attracting some of the world's largest financial institutions and a bunch of mid-sized ones to her uh, enterprise scheduling application uh, company. So um, very good. And we have the same thing with a a now very mature company, a leader named Jamie King, who runs a company called Verifin, that's a leading anti-money laundering and fraud detection company. Jamie's actually built that company in St. John's, Newfoundland. And so there's, you know, again... Not an area known as a technology hotbed, not a Silicon Valley or Boston kind of market in terms of tech talent, but they've been able to do amazing things with building a culture and training from within and working with a, a very good local university with a very strong engineering program to just absolutely develop a world-class engineering and, and go-to-market organization. And all of the employees are located in St.
0: John's. Sounds like we should add some, some of them as our target guests. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, Carrie,
2: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> Carrie, you mentioned a very important point, and that's culture. Culture keeps coming up as a recurring, important topic on pretty much every single interview. What commonalities do you find amongst your portfolio companies in terms of culture?
2: I think it comes from caring about the customer, that also spills over into the employees. You know, there's certainly respect or no matter what someone's role is in the organization, that they can have an impact on a customer. I think those are some common things. We definitely see the lens of people beyond just what they do in their job. So we see a lot during COVID on mental health and ensuring that everyone's doing okay, working from their remote location, getting the support they need, the training for onboarding, et cetera. I think we see the better companies doing those types of things. And certainly, diversity and inclusion being an important part of the agenda for for many of these companies as they look for talent. It's silly to ignore you know a really large part of the population that could be very valuable members of your team. So,
0: yeah, are, are most of your companies engineering a culture from day one?
2: I would say the better ones definitely are. Some of them, it might be a little bit later. Although you know, I think often what we read and what we hear even today more so is if you wait too long, then people tend to just hire people that are more like them or from their referral network. The sooner you can do it, the more likely you will have a much more diverse and productive workforce.
1: I think our best leaders early on are doing it almost naturally. It's deliberate because it's just natural to them where it becomes maybe as the company scales and matures, they have to do more things to make it sort of more of a strategic build or a strategic thought process. But I think that leaders we get attracted to already have that inherent and it spills out in, in the, the way they behave and what they do when they're building their early stage teams.
2: Yeah, one, an example of one of our companies, Thought Exchange, that's doing some very interesting things. They have been remote from home from the very beginning. They're, they're based in a very small town in Rossland, British Columbia. Um, and so it was by need that they needed that. So it, certainly for them, there's no problem for them to think about finding the very best person to add to their executive team a woman in Quebec that they added, even though they really didn't have, you know, a large presence of other employees in that area. So because they've been like that from the beginning, it's much easier for them to make those kind of decisions than maybe other companies that have other considerations at the time.
1: I'd say one of the more deliberate moves we make too is just bringing or raising or elevating sort of corporate giving and corporate uh, social responsibility to the forefront. So our partner, Rob, and spearheaded spearheaded a foundation called the Upside Foundation. And, and what we do is we encourage our portfolio companies and the tech community at large in Canada, when they're first getting started to actually contribute a little bit of options to the foundation. And again, it's sort of this contribution when they don't have time, they don't have money, but they do have equity. And equity is cheap when companies are early, contribute at the foundation, and then use that as a rallying call for your employees to get around a specific cause, because If they grow a billion dollar company and realize the proceeds, the foundation makes a lot of money and the the employees can actually dictate where they want that money to go. So there's different ways that we can also help support the development of cultures and and sort of the, the awareness to social responsibility within early stage companies.
0: That's an interesting concept. I don't think a lot of nonprofits are accepting that kind of donation. So I think there's a lot of legs there. That's fascinating. Now, you, you've mentioned this already, at least a little bit, but you're obviously not just providing capital, you're, you're adding a lot more than that, right? Tell us about some of the added value that you aim to provide to your companies and then maybe you can add a couple of examples.
1: Sure. You know, I think the things that, again, our companies are relatively early stage. Sometimes they're just, you know, maybe a million dollars in revenue and a few early customers. And like I said, the teams aren't really fully built out. So I think what we try to do is really understand what the company needs help with the most at a given time, because there's only so many things that a company can work on at, at early stages at the same time and be successful. So more often than not, early on, we're definitely helping and recruiting and trying to attract talent to the company at the senior leadership team level. And as Carrie mentioned before, I think we draw in some pretty significant networks that we've built up over decades in, in this business. Now, out of financial services and, and out of past successful companies that we back to bring that kind of maturity to the company. I think the other thing that we we instill very early, and in fact, it's in our name, Information Venture Partners, is really getting at the right kinds of data starting to put those measures and sort of resources in place to really understand what's happening with the business and make data-informed decisions about how you're going to move and pivot and develop the business. So we try to instill that by making sure they've got good reporting and, and sort of are focused on measuring the right things. I think one of the hallmarks of what we do too when we lead investments is we almost always insist on trying to bring some independent board members to the table. So many, many times you'll see our term sheets include not just us being on the board, but us and the CEO co-founder developing a sort of a list of independent board members we can bring to the table that can help those young executives scale. And again, we'll bring them out of industry or from our network and have them do that. they bring a certain kind of domain expertise or something else to help the company avoid pitfalls. Um, and I think we've done that successfully in many cases.
0: That makes a lot of sense.
2: We have the uh, the benefit of an overall lens and how companies perform. So as they also go through different phases of development we'll get the question or we may be proactively providing them some data that says companies that you know have scaled from 5 to 10 million dollars in revenue typically are thinking about adding these kinds of functions or scaling up in this area versus that area depending on the type of business and so over time we also have data of you know larger subsets than just their own company that we can share blinded with them to make decisions as well
0: now, let's talk a little bit about the big elephant in the room, and that is uh, the COVID crisis. I mean, that doesn't matter where you are. This has affected you, right? How has it impacted your portfolio? And also, how how have you navigated this as a company?
1: I'll take a stab at that, and then Carrie can help if I miss anything. But I think I think one of the benefits entrepreneurs have that are within our portfolio, and at least it's help that we can provide them. Both Rob Carey and I have been through uh, multiple situations, black swan events, if you will, whether it's the crash in two thousand and one or, or the financial crisis in 2008, seven, eight. You know, so we've been through these massive, previously unthought of sort of corrections or crashes, retractions in the business cycle, and certainly COVID is as bad as any of the worse and as any of the others in, in certain respects. But I think we have that perspective of having gone through um, those situations before. So I think one of the first things we did during COVID was try to marshal sort of our collective wisdom, if you will, and put it down on paper and write an open letter to not just our portfolio company CEOs, which we shared it with first, but also the broader community on the things that early stage companies ought to be thinking about in terms of surviving this storm and coming out the other end in a stronger and better place. And in some cases, that's making sure there was significant cash on hand. And and that meant some, in some cases, some difficult cuts to portfolio company employees and and other things. A rapid switch in this environment from, you know, sourcing deals and sourcing leads and meeting with customers at in-person events to digital marketing and sort of digital engagement and trying to figure out how you're going to meet your customer in a world where you can't meet. And so advice and sort of strategies on how to think about that. And also in this environment, what are the things that you have to start to do to future proof? So what are the things that you can start to do around product and other things to make adjustments that might make it more appealing? I think to our surprise, many financial institutions actually accelerated their spend on digital and automation and customer engagement, virtual customer engagement. So you know, while we were preparing for the worst, I think some of our companies actually experienced an uptick in in sort of demand because if you think about our overall strategy of business to business fintech, we're investing in things that help automate or digitize legacy bank processes. And, and so I think that, you know, some of our companies became unexpected beneficiaries of what's been happening. And I think, you know, surviving as a company, I think the one thing we didn't lose sight of, and we also wrote a piece on to share with our portfolio companies and used examples from our portfolios, how do you support people's mental well-being through all of this? Because if team at, in an early stage company is of utmost important, how do you support and, and nourish that team and keep their minds in the game and, and keep their minds happy and, and survivable through something like this? Um, so we spent a fair amount of time examining different strategies they could do to, to engage their employees and maintain their mental health. Carrie, what did I leave out?
2: Yeah, I think, I'll, well, I'll flip to the other part of the question is just for, I, you know, for information venture partners, you know, what, how did it look from our perspective? You know, it, it meant obviously communicating more with our investors as well. So we very quickly communicated to them that we were gathering information about the portfolio and would, would obviously chat with them, you know, once we would made sure that the companies were good, which they were all fine with. And we've had, you know, we certainly have had more communication with them. We're a pretty transparent group. We, we do a, an open quarterly update to all of our LPs, but certainly our P advisory committee or LPAC has met a couple more times this year, just to dig a little bit deeper into sort of the risks and the opportunities. And and I I will say that, uh, you know, to reiterate what Dave said, you know, we've been really pleasantly surprised that for the bulk of the companies, you know, there might've been a small slowdown during that initial post-COVID announcement phase when they're sort of back on track. But we've had a couple where really their business plan has been accelerated by COVID in helping the financial services organizations better serve their customers during this period of time through their digital solutions, so, which has been good.
0: Now, looking forward, in light of, of course, a changing world and that being exacerbated by COVID, are there any particular areas within fintech that you are paying special attention to? From my perspective,
2: super interested in privacy and security particularly as everyone works from home and, you know, we're not in the same environments. That certainly is something that, you know, remains very much on our radar. We have a couple of companies in that space. In your New York market, we have Big ID that looks at protecting personally identifiable information. And certainly those types of companies remain really, really interesting to us.
1: Dave, I think Carrie's right on. I think we're spending a lot of time there. And and certainly the other area that I think we're all trying to understand is, what are the implications for open banking? You know, I think we're going to start to see more and more European-style open banking regulations come down in the North American marketplace, and you know, what opportunities does that afford both for you know startup and to sort of disruptor organizations, but also for the large incumbents? How are they going to start to deal with that and 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 look for ways to to take advantage of what the openness of a of a market that's been historically very closed with very very deep moats around it? So will be an interesting transformation, we think, that's going to unfold. And it's not unfolding over the next year, it's the next decade, but it keeps us very excited about investing in fintech going forward.
2: Yeah, and I think just overall, these ones we talk about where they're enhancing the customer experience, simplifying years and years of regulations and compliance, etc., uh, you know, certainly will we'll, we'll have legs in the marketplace going forward, particularly when people can't come in in person to sign things. So there should be lots of changes that you know ultimately are enabled quicker due to COVID.
0: Yeah, I've certainly been impressed by by how some of these services have quickly adapted and improved, even normalization in the U.S. that has, has improved significantly in the last six months. So how about the road ahead for IVP? So you've been independent for about six years. How do the next six, 10 or 20 years look like?
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, I think what we've been doing uh, now as we head into Fund 3 and look at future funds, we're very much focused on building our own team out. So in addition to Rob, Carrie, and I, we've promoted recently a, a principal, Alex Tong, and we're hiring new people to the team, including a director of finance and an associate that's been added recently, because I think as our platform continues to scale, we have to start to develop the next generation of investment professionals that will you know, ultimately be partners in the the organization as we continue to raise larger and and hopefully successful funds and successive funds. So part of it's doing what we preach to our portfolio companies, which is building the best team that you can. And so we're focused very much on doing that. Um, Once you have really smart people around the table, you make the best, hopefully the best investment decisions and also attract the best LPs to the fund. And so I, I think that's probably the most important thing that we can do going forward. We're incredibly excited about fintech, though, as a, as a category, and, and we have multiple sleeves within fintech, but it's all B2B, and we just think we're at the, really still the early innings of a massive rewiring of the way financial services works globally, and, and so I think um, we're as excited as we could ever be about opportunities to invest in absolutely groundbreaking companies in that sector.
2: Yeah, very encouraged, too, by the, the number of innovation groups that are inside the financial services firms insurance you know some of the other ancillary areas so you know they look to partner and work more with startups and so that that's great for us and for our ecosystem as well and and we look to try and help nurture those relationships so uh, we've definitely seen that you know improve in the last sort of 3 to 5 years where you know might have had one or two banks that were forward enough thinking to have a whole group uh, now we're finding it more the norm that a number of these organizations have it and even some of the smaller local and community banks and credit unions here in Canada also you know, have a little bit of that lens as well.
0: Great. So before we go, I have two questions and a little, one is going back a little bit and specific for you, Kerry. I think we haven't had a VC CFO on the show today. So I, I think it would be interesting to learn uh, your point of view and, and what's important as the CFO of a venture capital firm.
2: And I will say that there's probably a range of people in these roles. So sometimes, you know, it's a partner that was investing uh, that, you know, had a finance background that took over some of the finance function. And that's really how I got started. I actually was more on the investment side and, and flipped, particularly as we spun out our larger LPs, wanted someone looking after that. So I kind of describe sometimes to people that I'm a bit of the voice of the LPs, just like in a public company, oftentimes think the CFO to the audit committee is, you know, a little bit of the voice of the outside shareholder. And so I obviously work a little bit more closely than some of our other team members with our limited partners on a regular basis, understanding what they need from us with respect to reporting and those types of things. I do have a seat on the investment committee in our, in our case. That's not always the case in firms. You know, sometimes if someone is more just, or not just, I shouldn't say just, but it's completely focused in finance. They will not participate in in that activity. We're a small firm, so a couple of hats obviously are being worn. I have oversight of our legal agreements with all of our deals. Look at after all of the diligence and things as limited partners are are looking at us as an investment opportunity. I'm sure we're complying with all the rules as it relates to the SEC in the U.S. If we're raising in the U.S., obviously in Canada or other jurisdictions and and those types.
0: Thank you for that. Does that give
2: you a good uh, good overview. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. I had to ask it while you were here.
2: <laughs> okay, no problem.
0: Great. And, and well, before we go, there's a question we'd like to ask all of our guests, and that's you know, to hear about some of your time outside of work. I usually, I used to say outside of the office, but you know, there's no office anymore <laughs> these days. So you know, maybe we could hear about some of your hobbies outside of information and venture partners.
1: Well, I, I, uh, I'm not sure I have a ton of room for hobbies cause I haven't, I have an 11 year old and a nine year old at home. And, uh, and so that keeps me incredibly, incredibly busy, but, uh, to the extent that I do, we, we like to actually get a, get away and unplug. So one of the benefits of living in Canada is you're, you can be, you know, within three hours, you can be outside and being in, in a completely remote area, um, of the province. And, and so I think that's probably the thing that, that we as a family enjoy most is to actually get away and Unplug since I spend Monday through Friday uh, all around the clock on technology. It's kind of nice to get away from it a little bit and, and uh, explore different uh, different elements. Of what's happening
2: and from my side? I guess during COVID, I have to say my garden's doing way better than it ever <laughs> has in any other year. So that certainly has uh, has picked up from an interest perspective to be outside. And like Dave, I do like water. He likes his up at Lake Country. I like mine a little bit looking more Caribbean like. So. I do like to spend time in my favorite island in the Turks and Caicos whenever I possibly can. Uh, just being outside, walking on the beach, gives you the great opportunity to clear your mind, and then ultimately, as you you know think about work, you know maybe think about some new ideas that might work.
0: Really selling selling the outdoors uh, and you know just the nature in general. So I, I think that's yep. uh, it's quite important these days. Being stuck at home, yeah, great. Well. Dave, Kerry, uh, truly a, an interesting and fascinating chat. Thank you for stopping by. We do appreciate it. And also, I want to reiterate that you know, you're now friends of Wharton, and you are invited to stop by anytime. Yeah, well, thank thank you. you very much for having us today. It was, it was a great chat. Thank you.
2: Yeah, really great to meet you, Miguel. Thanks for the
0: opportunity. Thank you. Look forward to staying in touch thank you for listening to today's episode of the wartime fintech podcast if you like the show please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments it means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on linkedin twitter and the rest of social media at wharton fintech you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry we also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor rafael ostria signing off i'm your host miguel Armasa.